John chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. John 1, 6 to 13, the true light. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. And he came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that Christ, He alone is the true light. We ask You to show us more about this true light and give us confidence, give us faith, conviction. Give us, Lord, the kind of faith we need that will increase, that will glorify Him and radiate in us to others that they might be saved. Teach us more from Your Holy Word. In Christ, Amen. Well, now John the Apostle is going to introduce to us another witness. Remember from last time, we learned that John considers himself a witness. He is a witness, an eyewitness of many of the words and works of Christ. And that's why he's writing this book. He described himself as a witness in chapter 19, verse 35. He who has seen has borne witness, and he knows that his witness is true. John 19, 35 and also in chapter 20, 30 to 31, he wrote these things, these miracles, these signs here that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. John the Apostle, that is James and John were two brothers. They were sons of Zebedee and they were among the 12 apostles. John the Apostle wrote this book as a witness and a testimony. However, we will see beginning in this chapter, that he's going to show forth other witnesses to the truthfulness, to the veracity of what we have here in the Word of God, in this book of John. He's going to bring forth other witnesses. The witnesses will be the miracles of Christ Himself. The witnesses will be God the Father and what He says about Christ. It will be what the Holy Spirit says. It will be what John here, John the Baptist says, it will be what others say. It's going to be a testimony, uh, a multiple list of witnesses or testimonies from various sources from heaven and on earth that testify and point to Christ as the true light. And why does he do this? Why does John the Apostle do it? How, he does it because we need confidence. We need confidence. We need assurance. We need certainty that when we read the Bible, it is actually true. Many of us, when we are converted, we have this new sense that the Bible is true and we are reading it in faith. However, even once we do convert, once we are in the faith, there are times, day by day, and almost every day, when a doubt comes to our mind about whether what's written in the Bible is true whether it's wise, whether it is the best for my life. 
this life now and the life to come? Well, the Bible is written, and John writes this, in order for us to remove all doubt, so that we might have greater and greater faith in who God is, through His Word and by His Holy Spirit, that we might have a transformed life and with an increase of faith, producing more and more fruit of the Holy Spirit, which comes by faith in the Word of Christ. So, John, understanding that, knowing that, he tells us by the Holy Spirit in verses 6 and following that we should trust the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, someone other than himself. Verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He tells us here a few things about John in verse 6. Now this John that he's referencing is not himself, but this is John the Baptist. We will see this in just a moment. He's referring to another man named John. The name John was in some ways a popular name at that time. It's actually a shortened form of of a name that means the Lord is gracious from the Hebrew Old Testament and now into the New Testament and then into English. It means the Lord is gracious or the Lord has given, given grace, uh, given a blessing. This is what the name means. That's what John means. So it would be an obvious popular name that parents would give to their sons. It would be an obvious popular name, just as we have popular names today. And even in our own culture, the name John is one of the most popular names. So this John, he distinguishes himself, John the Apostle distinguishes himself from John the Baptist. And he says, in reference to him, that he was a man, but he was not just any man. He was a man sent from God. John the Baptist was a man sent from God, which means he was a prophet, which means he had divine authority. He had authority from heaven to say what he said and to preach what he preached and to live the way he lived and to call people to repent and believe in the gospel. That's what this John was. He was from God. We have to have that fixed in our mind that he was sent from God. In other words, he was not... He was not an erratic man, or he was not uh, a fabulous man. He was not a, uh, a, a man who was a fanatic, who suddenly said that he was going to start preaching about God or manipulate the people, manipulate the crowds of people. He was not that kind of a man. He was a man who truly had the call of God in his life. And so, therefore, we should pay attention. If a man claims to preach the word of God and does not have the call of God in his life, whether it's John, the prophets, the other prophets of the Old Testament, or the New Testament apostles, if there is no true call of God, why should we listen? And the same is true of pastors, pastors and elders of churches. If they don't have a call of God for this word, then why listen to them? If they don't have the call of God, then they are in it for the money, the fame and the fortune of being in ministry and being able to manipulate the people and stand before people and get a a kind of a superficial respect from the people. That's all vain. But John, this John, was not like that. He came from God. Now, when it says he came from God, it was accompanied by certain 
events and miracles. Let's see in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. When John the Apostle tells us that John the Baptist, or John the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, when he says that he was from God, he is asserting something that was commonly believed and understood among the Jewish people to be the case. So let us see the kinds of things they knew about this John the Baptist that we call, and even the Bible in certain places calls, John the Baptist. Verse, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. We learn what here? In the, he was a real man in the days of Herod. Herod, no one doubts that Herod was king of Judea in the, in 2,000 years ago at this point in history. Now this John was, notice who his parents were. He was a priest. His father was a priest. His name was Zacharias. And he was also married to a woman named Elizabeth who was a descendant of Aaron. So this is the priestly family. This is the priestly family coming from the time of Aaron. And Aaron and Moses lived 1,500 years before this period. And, and over the years, they kept the, the priesthood in the family of Aaron as Moses told them to do so. Not in Moses' own family, but in his brother's family, in the family of Aaron. Verse 6, these parents of John... John the Baptist, they were righteous. Both were righteous. They were blameless in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So they were godly people. They knew the Lord. They were saved from their sins. They knew to put their hope in the coming Christ. They knew that. But there was one difficulty. Verse 7. Elizabeth was barren. She could not bear a child. And both of them were advanced in years. So the likelihood of them having a child was very slim. So, this is their circumstance. They have a good reputation among the people. They're not wicked parents. They have a good reputation. And then verses 8 and following. Now, it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. See, the angel in this unique situation inside the temple when he was selected by God, because it says it was by lot, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense, in the incense at the incense altar. An angel appears and assures him that his prayers have been answered and his wife Elizabeth will bear a son whose name is John. John the Baptist. Verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
He's going to be appointed by God and he's not going to drink wine or liquor, be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This is an oddity. This does not usually happen. And what will he do once he's grown? Verse 16, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him. In your Bible, the him, if it is a capitalized H, that's indicative of it being that he's going to go before Christ the Lord. So that means he's going to be a forerunner. He's going to announce the imminent coming of Christ right behind him. He will be a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is his duty. He's going to be, uh, in a sense, Elijah, who had lived 900 years or 850 years before the, this birth of John the Baptist. So he's going to be similar to Elijah in that he's going to be a very austere man, a man who's going to have restrictions placed upon him and preach to the people about repentance and turning to God. This is the way John will be, this John the Baptist. And notice in verse 16 again, it says, He's going to turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. So this was announced about John, who was going to be sent from God in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that he would be a second Elijah, not a reincarnation of Elijah as some people uh, misinterpret. He's not a reincarnation. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. But he's going to come, as it says in verse 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to be like Elijah in many ways, but he's not going to be a reincarnation of Elijah. So he's going to turn many people back. This was the message Zacharias received from the angel inside the temple miraculously. And then in the subsequent verses of chapter one, what happens? Elizabeth conceives. She gives birth to a son. And then all the people are wondering and, and happy and amazed about this. And they want to give him another name. But the father says, the, father, the mother and father says, say, notice verse 60, chapter 1, verse 60. And his mother answered and said, No indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And he, they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. So here, the father, the mother, the crowds, all the relatives, all the people, they know that a miracle occurred in the temple. Which miracle was confirmed because Zacharias was made mute until the birth of his own son. He was made mute because at the time, Zacharias, though he was a righteous man, he didn't believe what the angel said. So the angel said, I'm going to make you mute or dumb. You won't be able to speak until your child is born, your son is born. And so all the people knew that this was by the hand of God, that this John the Baptist, son of Zacharias, was sent from God. They knew it in those terms as well. Now, remember when we said his name is John, it means the Lord is gracious. Why? Because this John, though he's preaching repentance, 
He also preaches grace. He preaches repentance for forgiveness of sins, but he preaches grace, the doctrines of grace, that God in his grace will save us from our sins in Christ. This is the gracious gracious doctrine or gospel that he preached. It says in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, that John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So if he's preaching faith in Christ, it has to be by grace through faith in Christ that he was preaching. And he certainly was, because he saw Jesus approaching and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what John preached. He preached repentance for forgiveness and gracious faith in Christ. Moreover, what else do we learn about John? Why do we know or how do we know we can trust him as being sent from God? And for that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. We have Jesus vindicating, reiterating that John was sent, John the Baptist was sent by God. But we'll also see something else, the way he lived. Matthew eleven seven. Matthew eleven seven. And as these were going away, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness, into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A, see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if... if Excuse me, and if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Christ is telling the the people, uh, confronting them about what they actually went out to look at. In verses 7, uh, 7 and 8. He said, you went out into the wilderness. You went out to a barren place. You went out into the desert. Why did you, multitudes of people, go way out there? Because if you wanted to see somebody living in luxury, you would have gone to the king's palace. You would have been where the palace was. You would not go into a desert place, to a wilderness, to a barren place. You would not go out there, right? So that tells us, confirms to us, 
as we know from other places, John the Baptist, he spent his time in remote places, in barren places, and he preached the gospel in those places, right? He did not live, in other words, he did not live a life of luxury. He had crowds of people following him, but not because they were looking for luxury, right? He had crowds of people following him because God was stirring up the people to hear his words, to hear his gospel words there in the wilderness. He was living a rough life out there. Remember, it says that he, his diet was locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey. That's what he regularly ate. And according to this verse, verses 18 and 19, he did not eat and drink. That means he didn't eat meat and he didn't drink wine. John the Baptist did not eat meat and he did not drink wine because he had a special calling from God to avoid those things, right? He had a special calling to avoid those things, so he did not do so. So there too, he's living a very restricted life, an austere life in the wilderness, though he had crowds coming, right? So he was showing in that way, in that life, that even though he had crowds listening to him, he was not manipulating the people. He was not exploiting the people. He was not doing it for gold and silver. He was not doing it for notoriety. He was not doing it for any of those reasons. He did it because he had a calling of God to preach the true gospel to the people. And Jesus here confirms it. This is who John was. And furthermore, it says in verse 11, 11, 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That means the greatest of all the prophets of the Old Testament era, the greatest of all the prophets was John the Baptist because of how he was as a man and what he preached and he had the privilege of being the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. For these reasons, he is given this, um, this kind of eulogy in verse 11. No one born of women is greater than him. Of, of course, Christ is excluding himself. But John was this kind of man, sent from God. Now, back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 7. 1, 7. It says in verse 7, He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. Why was John sent? He was sent to be a witness to the light, a witness of the light. John himself was not the light. He was not the Savior. He was not the Redeemer. He was not the Christ. He was not someone who lived in heaven first or from eternity past. He was a man, right? But he came to testify of the light to witness, to bear witness or testify of the light. This is showing, too, his humility. His humility. Can you think, what would you do if you had crowds and crowds of people following you? If you had multitudes following you, however you lived, whether you lived in poverty or luxury, however you lived, if you had crowds of people following you and the people were to say, I wonder if he's the light. I wonder if he's the Christ. 
Is he the savior of the world? What would we do? I'm sure we would say, yes, yes. I am the light. Worship me, follow me, things like that. That's what we would do. But he did not do that. It says in verse 7, He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. All might believe in Christ through his preaching. Right? Believe in Christ through his preaching. For example, John 1, John 1, 15. John 1, 15. John bore witness of him. That is, John the Baptist bore witness of Christ and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is a humble statement. John the Baptist is saying of Christ that I'm preaching Christ and he's going to come after me in terms of ministry, public ministry, but he has a higher rank than I. Why? Because he existed before me. I only existed, I, John the Baptist, only existed when I was conceived in the woman born in the world. But Christ existed before me because he existed from eternity past. He possesses deity. He has a divine nature. And I'm telling you to believe in him. Verse 19, further. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. He says, I am not the Christ. John the Baptist is telling the religious leaders of his day, I am not the Christ. Not at all. And what does he say about himself? Verse 23, he said, John says of himself, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. As Isaiah said, he knew he was sent as a messenger in front of Christ. Further, further, turn to, with me to chapter 1 and verse 34. 134. John the Baptist still speaks. And what does he say in 134? And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist is telling the crowds of people that Christ is the Son of God. He's testifying to that truth. Now, I said that he's doing all this in humility. Here's further evidence of that. Chapter 3. John chapter 3. Chapter 3, 27. John 3, 27. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. There we have it in verse 30, 27 and 30, actually, and with his illustration. 27. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. That is, he knew his calling was from God, from heaven. Just as everything that we have that's good comes from heaven. He says that in 27. And further in 28, he categorically denies that he's the Christ. He says, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. 
verse 29. He calls himself the friend of the groom. He's not the groom. The groom is about to come, but the friend of the groom is who he is. And then in verse 30, he, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. Yes, I have been sent in advance of him to prepare the way and to make the people expect him and believe in him, to bring that about. But when he comes on the scene, when he comes in his public ministry, he will have front and center attention. He will increase and I will decrease. And it so happens, we know, that when Jesus began his ministry, it was about that time that John the Baptist was arrested, put in prison, and beheaded. So there was also a physical and natural transition between Christ and John because God had ordained that Herod, wicked Herod, and and the wicked, adulterous woman he had, Herodias, would execute John, behead him in in that way. So, John... He was bearing witness of Christ the light. Then it says in chapter 1, verse 7, that all might believe through him. When it says that all might believe through him, it is obviously a restricted use of this word all because it's all of those who heard him preach. Right? Because not everybody heard him preach. Only the people who were living in Judea, in in Israel, in the land of Israel at the time, they heard him. But not all the nations of the world. John did not go to all the nations of the world. He was preaching to the crowds. So he preached that the crowds of people might believe in Christ through the ministry of John. Correct? So this is a further confirmation that John's not preaching himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. He's not preaching that people should follow him, but follow Christ through his ministry of the word. Further evidence of his humility. And this also reiterates and tells us actually for the first time in verse 7 that John's purpose in writing is for people to believe, to believe in Christ. You will notice this word. Pay attention to this word belief or believe or faith or have faith, words like this throughout this book, especially the word believe. He told us in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, that he wants us to believe, and he's going to give us different pictures or different implications, different scenarios, crowds of people or individuals who believe or don't believe throughout this book. So this will be a lesson for us as to how true belief manifests itself. What are the results or fruits of true belief and false belief? Continue in verse 8. He was not the light. Now John himself, John the Apostle, tells us about John the Baptist. He was not the light. To make sure we understand and that nobody falsely brings up a false Christ. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light, reiterating what he has said in verses 6 and 7. This is the reason for the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, verses 9 to 13. Verses 9 to 13. Verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens 
every man. Now, this true light, he means that this true light is Christ. We know he's talking about Christ. Christ is the true light as opposed to lights that do not have a source or origin. For example, the reason why the sun has light has to do with God or Christ giving the sun light. The reason why the moon has light has to do with what it, its place in creation, not because it has light in and of itself. The same thing with other lights. For example, in the tabernacle and temple, there was the table of the lampstand. The altar or the table of the lampstand was right there. And that light had to be lit or kept lit all the time, right? So that light there represented in a small way, in a symbolic way, Christ as the true light or the light of the world. So Christ is the true light in that sense. He fulfills all of the pictures and all of the illustrations that of light both in the temple that Moses and, and um, Solomon, the, the furniture of the temple and all of the rituals of the temple that Moses, Solomon, David, they all instituted there. But also, he is the true light in that there are false lights. There are false prophets, false teachers in the world, and they claim that they have light and they will show you the light, but it's not true. It's not there. It's found only in Christ. Only in Christ and those who correctly preach Christ or accurately represent Christ. That's where the true light is found. In this case, in verse 9, he says, The true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. What does he mean by this? In the last message, I mentioned in verses 4 and 5 that I thought that verses 4 and 5 had to do with redemptive life or redemptive light. And that is the way we can take verse 9 as well. Redemptive light that comes into the world and enlightens every man, meaning all kinds of men among the elect, whether Jews or Gentiles. That's one way to look at this interpretation. However, we may also say, even with verses 4 and 5 from last time, that verse 9 may also be dealing with how Christ has given all men a certain knowledge of God and a certain knowledge of right and wrong. Some interpreters take verse 9 to be like that. So this light that Christ has in giving us, for example, reason, the ability to think, logic, a conscience, a, a desire or a, a distinction between right and wrong. We know that. We know it's wrong to steal. We know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to worship idols. We know things like that. They are obvious things. So that would be the other way to understand verse 9. However, one way we cannot take verse 9 or even verses 4 and 5 is known as prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. That means grace that comes beforehand or in advance. Other interpreters wrongly take verse 9 to mean that God gives every single person in the world an ounce at least of grace and faith. 
They give, God gives everyone a little bit, at least, of grace and faith uh, in order for them to exercise that grace or faith and believe in Him. That is not true, and that's not found in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says the very opposite. We will see in verse 13 that it is actually the very opposite. So verse 9 could not be teaching that. When we come to verse 13, we will see that if anybody's going to receive grace, it's going to be because God makes him born again. He's going to be born again because of that. But not because everyone has an equal measure or a small measure of grace and faith. That's not true. Then, verse 10. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So, Christ was in the world, John announces. So, he was in our world, in time and space, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He not only was in the world, he made this world in which he dwelt, or in which his virtues or his, his grace or his light in a general sense is manifested to men. But in verse 10, the world did not know him. The world did not know him either in that we live in our trespasses and sins. We love them and we continue to walk in them. And Or he might be meaning in verse 10 that... Even though Christ was preached in the world, many, many people in the world did not believe in Him. And we know that to be the case in the land of Israel and then when the gospel spread to other nations. The world did not know Him or did not believe in Him. But then in verse 11, He transitions to the Jewish people. He came to His own and those who were His own did not Receive him. In verse 11, when he says his own, I believe his own is the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. He was born in a Jewish household of the line of David. So that means from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. So he was from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Christ was like that. He came to his own people. But those who were his own people, the Jewish people or Hebrew people, the people of Israel, did not receive him. He means by receive, he means believe. He, by receive, he means saved from their sins. Because he will say in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The Jewish people, they listened to him temporarily and some of them did believe, but the nation as a whole did not believe. And that's what he means. He's generalizing, saying that the whole nation did not convert. The nation, the majority of the people did not convert, did not believe in him. Which should not surprise us. Do you remember that Christ said in Mark chapter 6, he said that, uh, a prophet is not without honor, except among his relatives and in his hometown and, uh, and in his own household. A prophet is not without honor. Means what? 
that prophets do get honor, but prophets don't usually get honor in their own immediate family, among the relatives, and in their own towns. They don't get honor. Why? Because they are familiar faces. And they say, how could this, this young man, or how could this man over here that we know, how could he become a prophet of God? We're not going to listen to him. He, he's just a nobody in our town. So why would God raise him up? Right? So that's the way they treated Christ. Did they not say that, that they didn't believe that the Christ would come out of Galilee? How could they believe? They, they said, how is it that he could come out of Nazareth? Nazareth for us, since it's in the scriptures and we are believers, we, we say Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. We know this word, so it's not an unusual word for us in that way. But to them, Nazareth was a very small town. It was in an obscure place in the land of Israel, let alone the world. Nobody in the world knew that. But even in the land of Israel, they said, it's just a small place. There's only a few people there. Nothing major is going to come out of that. It, uh, he, didn't, he was not born in Jerusalem. He was not born in the palace. He was not born of nobility. Nothing like that. He was born in an obscure place. And this is what John means in verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Which reminds us, that people usually believe in others because of reputation, because of notoriety, because of fame, because of beauty, because of wealth, because of power. This is why people usually believe in others. Even those that go to crowds, <clears throat> crowds and crowds uh, in big, very big churches, why does that happen? Because those who are preaching in those pulpits are assuring the crowds of people who come that if you come here, you can live as you want. And if you come here, just as we have a lot of money, we who are preaching to you, we have a lot of money, you will also get a lot of money from God. That's the kind of thing that they promise the people. So that's why people go there. That's why they are received in great numbers. But that's not what happened to Christ. Christ did not offer lots of money to the people, right? Christ did not offer fame and fortune to the people. He offered a cross. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me, he said, Luke 9, 23. So that's why they did not receive him in terms of human desires and intentions. But there's another reason. Verses 12 and 13. What is this other reason? Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 12 is teaching us that many people did believe in him. We do know from 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. So there were 500 brethren at one time after his resurrection that witnessed his bodily, physical, fleshly resurrection from the dead as in an immortal body. And some of them, from Acts chapter 1, they saw him rise up, ascend into heaven, into the clouds, and heard the angel address them and give them the meaning of his ascension. 
That's what happened at that time. During the time of the day of Pentecost, how many people from the time Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven till the day of Pentecost, how many people were praying in the upper room? 120. 120. And then since that time, there are many people throughout the world who believe. So there are many people in terms of the number or quantity of people who believe, but not many people in terms of the percentage of people who believe. Many in number, but not many in percentage. In percentage, it's very few. But in quantity, it's many. And that's what John is saying right here. As, but as many as received him. Whoever has received him, it's a good thing, right? Contrary to verse 11, those who don't receive him. But what does it mean to receive Christ? Verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. When we receive him, we are believing in him. When we believe in him, we have the right, we have the authority, we have the privilege, we have the honor of becoming children of God. We have this new name. We have this new status. We are adopted by the spirit of adoption, by the father of of adoption, into the family of God. We become a child of God. And now we have a new name, a new status, a new inheritance, an eternal inheritance. We are children of God. Of God. And having this condition, having this privilege or this status as inheritors of the blessings of eternal salvation in Christ, this is what we have because we believed. We believed in His name. We believed in the name of Christ. So this is what we possess if we receive Him or believe in His name. We have this in our possession. We have this privilege of being called a child of God. Behold how great a a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 3 verse 1. Then the question arises naturally, how do we actually become this child or how do we actually believe? How do we believe? Because we do know from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, that not all men have faith. Not all believe, or not all men have faith. Faith in Christ, Christ's name. Not all men do that. If they don't do that, then how is it possible that they do believe? Verse 13, you will see in your Bibles, verse 13 finishes the sentence started in verse 12. Correct? So, if we're going to understand verse 12 correctly, we should give the Holy Spirit, working in the Apostle John, at least the time of day to understand verse 13 and interpret it in relation to verse 12. He makes a statement in verse 12, but verse 13 explains how verse 12 comes about. How will we believe or how will we have this right to become children of God? 13 explains. Who were born? By being born, he means born again, or born from above, born from heaven, born of God. Who were born? Who are the who? The children of verse 12, or the many of verse 12. The many children of verse 12 who believe. So how did that happen? It says, 
who were born, first the negatives, not of blood, not of blood. By blood, he might mean ancestry, such as they like to say, the Jewish people like to say, we have Abraham for our father. They've done that. They will do that in John chapter 8. They did that in Luke chapter 3. We have Abraham for our father. John the Baptist had to tell them, do not say we have Abraham for our father, for God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. God can make children out of, of, of Abraham. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your blood. It's not dependent on your genealogy, your lineage. It doesn't matter who your ancestors were. It depends on what you will do, whether you will repent and believe in the gospel. It doesn't depend on blood. Also, it does not depend on animal blood, right? The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. How can anyone imagine that because they took an animal, let's say a sheep, and took it to the temple and had the sheep slaughtered and it, and it placed on the altar and then it was consumed, that that act, that ritual act of taking a sheep, an animal there to the temple would save that worshiper's soul. A sheep? A sheep is a, a, is a lesser being. A sheep is not a man. A sheep is a lesser animal and a lesser being. It does not possess the image of God. How can that save me from my sins? It's ridiculous to think that some blood of an animal can save me from my sins. Further, verse 13, nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of the flesh. We are not born again by the will of the flesh. By the will of the flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature, our corrupt, depraved nature, the flesh. The Bible says, when it's referring to our sinful nature, our, the way we are born into the world, it calls it the flesh, the will of the flesh. So we do have a will, right? We make decisions every day. We make many, many decisions every day, and our will is making those decisions. But he says, we're not going to be born of God, born again, by an act of our will. Why? Because the will that we have is a corrupt will. It's the will of the flesh. It's depraved. Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It won't happen that way. Not at all. Further, verse 13, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of man. We're not going to be born again or born of God by the will of man. It's not going to happen. The will of man. Your Bible may say, if you read the NIV and certain commentators, they might say the will of a husband. As, as though the husband can save the wife from her sins. It, it's not that way. I think it's more broadly than that, not the husband specifically, but broadly that any man, any other man, no matter how good he might be in civil matters, no matter how good he might be, he cannot save me. There is no way that another man can save me from my sins. No matter what he says, no matter what he does, nothing in this other man. In Psalm 49... Psalm 49, Psalm 49, verse 7. 49, 7 teaches us. No man 
can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay. Does it not say here in the Old Testament it says 49.7 No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. There is no payment. Payment of money, payment of blood, payment of resources, payment of dedication, payment of sacrifice, nothing that another man can do for you that's going to save you. So, if blood cannot save us or cause us to be born again, if our will of the flesh cannot cause us to be born again, and if the will of a man cannot cause us to be born again, what will cause us to be born again? God. But of God. So, if none of those in verse 13, those three negatives, cannot save us or cause us to be born again, only God can cause us to be born again. And if God causes us to be born again, He gives us life, He opens our eyes, He changes our heart so that we believe. This is the sequence or order of salvation. God has to cause a rebirth and then we believe. We have to have a rebirth for us to believe. It's not that we believe that causes our rebirth. It's our rebirth, our new heart, that causes us to believe or have faith. This is why it is rare in quantity. Because God has chosen not to give this rebirth to everyone in the world or everyone who hears the gospel, but only to some who hear the gospel. Some who hear the gospel become children of God. They are a part of the many, but they are born of God because God chooses to cause a rebirth in them. Rebirth is first, faith is second, according to John the Apostle here. This is what we all also should believe. In 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. Well, actually, 1 John chapter 2. Let's look at a few examples in 1 John to reiterate and confirm this point. Since it is a point that is often misunderstood. 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. 29, the last verse of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Here he says, everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, think about this. Do we practice righteousness first and then are born of God? Is that the way it happens? No. Very, few, very, very few people would ever have the temerity to say that openly, to say, yeah, yeah, I, I practice righteousness and then God caused me to be born again. No, they don't say, they would, will not say that. We know, obviously, you have to be born of Him and then you practice righteousness. Correct? Another example, chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because God's seed is in us, the seed of his word and, and produced by the Holy Spirit, work, the whole work of the Holy Spirit in us, his word and spirit working in us. Because the Spirit's work is in us, we cannot practice sin because we're born of God. And there too, what happens first? Do we stop practicing sin and then we're born of God as the cause? No, we are born of God and then the cause is, the result is, we stop practicing sin. And one more place. Chapter 5, verse 1. First John Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, John, in this one verse, in this one sentence of this verse, tells us the correct order. He says... If we are born of God, we believe Jesus is the Christ. He's not saying, if we believe Jesus is the Christ, then we will be born of God. He's saying, we believe that Jesus is the Christ when we are first born of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you want to know if somebody is born of God, he will believe that Jesus is the Christ. So the fruit of being born of God is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is the correct sequence. Actually, there's one more place in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 4, 7. Taking another virtue, the virtue of love. Do we love God first and then He loves us? Or does He love us first and then we love Him? 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. An exhortation for us to love one another, because love comes from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. How do you know if someone is born of God and knows God, knows Him in a true sense, not in a superficial sense, but in a redemptive sense? He's born of God and knows how can you know that somebody has those two qualities in him if he loves, if he loves one another. The one who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. Chapter 4, verse 19, 419. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us, which means that if we're thinking about this sequence being born again or in faith, if we're thinking about the sequence, how is God going to manifest that love toward us first? By causing our rebirth, by giving us a new heart. If He causes us to be born of Him, then we will love Him. But if He doesn't cause that to happen in us, it's not going to happen in us or toward others, and especially toward God himself. Let's have confidence in the word. It is the true word. Believe in Jesus Christ, the true light, and rejoice that we are his children because of his 
kindness and his grace toward us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.